If you have a life purpose, then nothing else really matters. You don't have to compare yourself to anybody else. You don't have to strive to be the best. You can just simply be you and everything sort of falls into place. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 165 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. Today's episode of the show is part two of a series guest hosted by Joel Jaffe, and his special guest today on the podcast is none other than Jessica Phillips. She's the acting principal clarinet of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and co-founder of the Met Orchestra Musicians Association. She discusses why your education is never really over, even after you land your first big job, maintaining a busy schedule of up to seven shows a week with the Met, how to stay ahead of the game with social media, how to be a business-savvy musician, and much, much more. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank all those who support the show on Patreon. I really do appreciate your support, but there's also a way that you can now support the show directly on the Clarinet website. You can go to clarinet.com join and get a free 30-day trial of the Clarinet Gold Edition which is the extended ad-free version of the show. I'd also like to thank our season sponsors, Bakun Musical Services and Legere Reads. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today, and I really do hope that you enjoy today's episode. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Cronager Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. In reaching out to Jessica Phillips, I wanted to interview artists on topics beyond the normal realm of clarinet playing. That's exactly what I'm doing as guest host of the Clarinet Podcast. I would like to introduce today's guest, Jessica Phillips, as we talk pivoting in classical music and the future of orchestral playing. Jessica Phillips was appointed second in E-flat clarinet of the Met Orchestra in 2001, having served as acting principal on four occasions. She is former chair of the Met Orchestra Committee, where she led negotiations for the orchestra's collective bargaining agreement with the Metropolitan Opera. Jessica is co-founder of the Met Orchestra Musicians' nonprofit organization and co-founder of KNP Strategy, where she leads strategic planning and innovation for the consulting firm. She is clarinet faculty, the Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University, and she also teaches entrepreneurship at Manhattan School of Music and the Juilliard School. Most recently, Jessica was one of Opera America's 13 participants in the prestigious 2021 Leadership Intensive Program. Jessica, thanks for joining me on Clarinet Podcast. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious, going back in time, what led you to the clarinet? Why the clarinet? <laughs> Actually, it really wasn't my choice. It was my grandfather's choice. 
he uh, loved Benny Goodman. Uh, being a World War II veteran, he always had the radio on overseas. And when he came back to America, he was stationed in, in uh, Italy and North Africa. And I was going to go to a camp, an overnight camp, and I could pick acting or singing or an instrument. And I already considered myself a pretty good recorder player, and I dabbled in the ukulele. So <laughs> uh, in discussions with my grandfather, he was like, you should play the licorice stick. Benny Goodman is my favorite. And I, I, I let him pick. I was named after him. Jordan is my middle name. And so he and I had a special relationship. And I picked up the clarinet at that camp. And honestly, I never, never looked back. So they literally just handed you a clarinet and some reeds and shipped you off to camp. And that was it? Actually, the camp provided the clarinet wow. and, and the reeds. And it was a, a week-long overnight camp, which, of course, my grandmother was scandalized. She thought I was way too young to go there. And I loved it, of course, and uh, felt so grown up. And uh, yeah, you got to take lessons every day on the clarinet. That's really where I, I first played it. It was an artly. I loved that instrument. <laughs> Is that sacrilegious? No, it's not sacrilegious. <laughs> this is beyond Bakun. This is just a, a normal conversation. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. And then I then I got to rent one when I came back. I I grew. Up, I was still living in Colorado at the time. This camp was in in South Jersey, where my grandparents lived, and I used to go there every summer and spend about a month, maybe even two months, with them. And uh, after I played clarinet at the camp, I loved it. I couldn't, I'm, I'm sure I couldn't shut up about it, honestly. So my parents got me a private teacher in Colorado and I kept with it. And then when we moved to Boston, there were so many opportunities on clarinet within the school and also youth orchestra programs, uh, the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra it's, I think it's now Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, but at the time I was one of the youngest woodwind players to be accepted into that program and AJ Oa was the conductor. And it was just an incredible like leap <laughs> from, you know, taking clarinet lessons and thinking I was awesome. And then, you know, being in this orchestra where everybody was just amazing and, and incredible. And I was just this like little kid in awe of everyone. So, and funny enough, John Kohler, was the assistant conductor of that youth orchestra. And he always remembers me. He remembers what I was wearing. I was wearing this like peach dress with like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg doily, you know, <laughs> neck, lace necklace. <laughs> He'll never let me forget it. Yeah, so I, I kind of, from there, the the education level of, of music was just, just beyond. I really, I really got lucky with that. Now you are known in the clarinet world for being an exceptional E-flat player. Is that where you picked it up with the Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, or was that later in your career and studies? <laughs> I'm laughing because the first auxiliary that Gypso had me play was the bass clarinet on Mahler II. And in the concert, I squeaked. And forever, I've never touched that instrument again. <laughs> you know, I was so betrayed that this horrible squeak in this concert happened. And, you know, basically, I can't even reach the lower keys on the, the bass clarinet anyway. My hands are really small. So E-flat's sort of a natural 
a natural auxiliary instrument for me. Um, I didn't play it a whole lot in high school. Uh, I think I sort of fell into it more in more in college. And when I was studying with Ricardo, he's actually a really great E flat clarinet player, although nobody would really ever hear him. But he uh, was really my first teacher on E flat, and and it was just wow. Yeah really like just a thousand fingerings and ways to think about managing reeds and mouthpieces and things like that. So I know it's, it's actually, most people would not associate him with that, but he's a phenomenal E-flat player <laughs> besides just being a phenomenal clarinet player. But that's really where I started thinking about it because I was playing it um, in maybe in college, but also freelancing around town. So yeah, I didn't really play it in high school. Maybe that's better. <laughs> and for college, you you actually didn't study music formally. Am I correct in that? Like you studied, was a poli-sci. Yep. Yep. I went to Barnard College, which is the Women's College of Columbia University. And really, I, I, I was a political science major and a music minor, mostly because to be a double major, you had to do piano proficiency. And in New York, I was living off campus in New York. I just couldn't get to a piano to practice. You know, it's so hard to find, find space, uh, spaces at a, a premium in New York City. But I really chose Barnard, number one, because it was in New York City. And I just really wanted to be in New York City. And... Number two, I wasn't quite sure I could make it as a musician. I sort of loved it in high school and then thought, this is like so amazing. You know, how could this possibly be a career? And I got into New England Conservatory and Eastman and eventually just chose Barnard because I really did want an education. And I was very interested in history but political science really, um, my early history courses were all about politics and um, a lot of statistics and things like that, which just, I loved. And I love that part of, of politics and canvassing. And I, I really love the kind of the behavioral psychology behind political science too. I um, was extremely happy with Barnard and just being in New York City and having access to all the arts Fast forward through your studies, how did you find yourself in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra? What was it like going from studies to being in one of the most famous opera orchestras in the world? I had been studying with Ricardo Morales, who was principal clarinet of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra at that time. And um, my senior year and my kind of postgraduate year, I took a year off, uh, mostly because I was like, I just want to practice. This is really what I want to do. And I want to be a musician. There isn't really anything else for me. So I was also studying with David Weber at the time. Uh, Mr. Weber was probably 90 years old. And I really, I really consider him to be like the polisher of my playing. Uh, lessons with him were, you know, three hours, and then we would go to lunch at Barney Greengrass, and he would, you know, get matzo ball soup, and it was very New York uh, Jewish delicatessen atmosphere there, which was just amazing. And the the job at the Met opened up, and it took a while for the audition to actually happen. So because I was not really um, in school anymore, I was available. And Steve Williamson and I were both given a lot of sub 
subbing situations at the Met. So um, I had just gotten into study with Larry Combs at DePaul, so I deferred a year. And Steve and I both subbed in the Met Orchestra for a whole season. And that was really huge for me. That was like my big break. I had been asked to sub at the last minute and had done well. The other co-principal, Joe Rabai, really liked me. I had actually been playing, I tell all of my students this, I had been playing a lot of second clarinet. So I would play duets with Mr. Weber. I played duets with Ricardo in almost all of my lessons. Um, I was really thinking about freelancing and being prepared. I was doing all of my etudes, like transposing them into C clarinet, just because opera, you transpose a lot. And you have to, you know, to be able to do it by sight is hard. So you need to kind of develop that part of your brain. I was playing a lot of second clarinet in the orc rep class at Manhattan School of Music, where I was doing my joint studies with Ricardo. So he knew I could play second, and I was really prepared to play second. Um, so, you know, fast forward to the actual audition, and we can talk about auditions too. That's a whole other story. But the preparation for the audition for me was really successful because it was music I didn't know. And I didn't have any old bad habits associated with, okay, this is how you play Mendelssohn Scherzo, and you've been playing it since high school, and you have all these bad habits already, <laughs> you know, bred into it. And uh, so playing something, you know, like um, Verdi's uh, Ivespri Siciliani was the same articulation as Mendelssohn Scherzo, but I could like learn it correctly from the beginning. And that was a huge thing for me. I really saw what I was capable of playing, not constantly trying to overcome bad habits. So in the audition, uh, it's funny enough, Steve and I were in the finals together. And on that day, you know, I won. And the, the, you really, I, I also tell people you don't have a whole lot of control over that. You know, you're not the committee. You can only just go in and play the best you can play that day. And, you know, for me, it worked out great. Luckily, Steve won principal, you know, two years later. He's such an amazing player and is now in Chicago and played principal New York Philharmonic. And, you know, I, I, he's a dear, dear friend. So, you know, that day I, I, I won the audition. And I remember um, my parents came into town to celebrate and uh, Ricardo in the whole kind of kerfluffle of winning everything, he gave me a card. And I opened the card and in it, the, it was a piece of paper, which was basically Lynn Harrell's commencement speech at Cleveland Institute of Music. And basically it's like, now the work begins, right? You're always learning, it's never over. And I was like, no, I just won, you know, I just won this audition. Like, and it was, he was absolutely right. You know, I got into the pit the first day and it was like, holy bleep. Right. This is a, a whole different ball game. Even though I had been subbing, I was somewhat prepared. But just the level of listening and accuracy that the Met Orchestra has is truly, you know, unparalleled uh, in terms of orchestras because we're listening to singers every single night. So we're listening to how they phrase and where they take a breath or how they're moving forward or how they're saying a syllable. And there's just so many little intricate details in opera that I, I just find that that orchestra is an incredible um, organism that listens as a group. And, you know, a singer can skip two beats 
And if we know it, we're there. You know, no conductor can really make that physical motion. It really takes uh, an orchestra that knows what it's doing. So that that's one of the biggest differences. We're so flexible in that way. Uh, of course, we get to repeat so much repertoire, right? We're doing Puccini all the time. We're doing Verdi all the time. Um, uh, we're, we're, you know, Wagner, of course, and Mozart. And so we have genres and styles. Rossini, for example, we play Rossini a certain way. Not every opera orchestra plays it that way. So having subbed in the orchestra was a tremendous help to me because it was like, we play Rossini short and fast and light, <laughs> you know? And like, for example, Muti came in and he conducted uh, an opera, Attila, which we we don't really often do. And he had a very different style for Rossini. He, like, he just, and Verdi, he just had very different note lengths that he wanted, just different ways of phrasing it, which we don't normally do. So we, we do have our stereotypical genre styles that we go back to over and over. And that, that institutional memory is one of the reasons, you know, why the orchestra does maintain itself, you know, despite music directors. We've had obviously, you know, very few in its lifetime, but that's one of the greatest things about it. It's not as swayed by the the person at the helm, although James Levine really built it into an incredible orchestra that it is today. One thing I'm I'm always amazed at is the schedule that you hold um, and you and the other Met musicians hold. Your schedule is the most insane I have ever seen in terms of rehearsals and, and split orchestra, orchestra A or orchestra B or one or two. or How do you manage it? Because it's, it's unlike any other orchestra I've, I've ever seen. Well, we, we have generally seven shows a week. I mean, that's just a tremendous uh, schedule, right? So... Generally, it's right now it's Tuesday through Sunday. So it'll be Tuesday through Friday evening shows. And then Saturday, generally there are two. There's a matinee and an evening. And now we've added, or, you know, I was part of the negotiations to add Sunday performances for the first time in 2018. Uh, And that's an afternoon matinee performance. So we don't always perform on Sundays. When we do, there is no Monday performance. But the history is Monday through Saturday, two on Saturday. And each uh, orchestra member is contractually required to do four performances a week. And so it just really depends, like if they're, if we're doing Giancarlo, Electra, Butterfly, and, you know, maybe dabbling Marriage of Figaro in there, probably I will have to do all of the Electras, right? There's, we don't switch on those. So the really difficult operas with, or, you know, a really, uh, high level conductor, let's say, we don't switch those operas. And so I'll kind of get locked into those. So that might be two shows of Electra a week. And then the other two might be like, uh, you know, kind of what I choose. I could do Figaro or Don Carlo. Second, sometimes doubles bass in opera. So I don't get to do like the really good Verdi. I didn't get to play Aida or Don Carlo until <laughs> I started playing principal. And then I was like, holy crap, these are really amazing. I've never played this before, um, which is always kind of fun to discover something like that. We do have a little bit more flexibility in a way than an orchestra 
for example, where they are going to re- they're going to rehearse, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday performance on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, maybe on Sunday or a repeat. And they can't really get out of that. So we do have some flexibility in terms of the of the rotation of repertoire. Um, the Met is a repertoire house, right? So we have maybe five or six productions going at any one time like that are kind of uh, we're rehearsing something, there's maybe four going and maybe one that's almost, you know, just about to leave. And so the, the, the mechanics and the interworkings of the house are such, that's, that's really the most incredible feat of, you know, you can walk backstage on any night and you'll see, you know, there is half of Electra on stage right. And you'll see all these like, you know, little pieces of, you know, Marriage of Figaro. And 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 the, then those props guys, they they know where all that stuff is. It's just incredible. I mean, the spreadsheet, I don't know how it looks, but they find all those pieces and every night, you know, they set. Uh, a different a different production. So it's it's a lot. I think it took me maybe five, four or five years to feel really comfortable knowing everything. Maybe five years for me because I started playing acting principal pretty early. Ricardo left after my I think my second year and went to Philadelphia Orchestra. So and Joe Rabai retired. So I ended up playing acting principal for a bit of time in there. And so with like, you know, learning all new parts um, in my third and fourth year was stressful. Uh, but also anytime I move over like that, it's such an incredible learning experience. You know, you're just thinking about different things and your, your role in the orchestra is slightly altered. So it's a, it's a new way of thinking about the music or having responsibility for the score or the solos and that kind of thing. Where a second, you're really worried about the sound of the section. You're, uh, focused on the harmonic pitch, uh, the way that um, all the chords are ringing. Um, I really think about chords a lot when I'm on second, you know? So like in my parts, if I have a third, you know, I might, I'll do like a double arrow up or down for major or minor so that I know, oh yeah, you're the third. You really do have to bring it up or down. And so I'm really adjusting um, the pitch a lot when I'm on second. I'm thinking about that a lot. Attacks, you have to be so precise. You can't come in early. You can't change notes early. Uh, so all of that kind of, you're you're really there to facilitate the principal being able to just feel so comfortable. It's kind of thankless. Like you don't know if it's great, but if it's bad, you know, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of a different, uh, different um, you know, uh, reward system. What is it like changing from being second to principal and then going back to second? I mean, it's so fluid and you have so much experience now having done it four times. Nothing can ever prepare you, but how do you prepare for it? That's, I mean, yeah, that's that's really it. I, I think there's two parts of that. There's the way that you play the clarinet and then there's the psychological way that you play the clarinet, right? So when you're playing principal, you just, you just have to have so much confidence Really, you have to think so much about what you want to say as a musician. And um, I have to practice in a different way. I really have to practice a lot more fundamentals. I have to warm up a lot more. Um, I have to I think I have to warm up anyway more as a as a <laughs> as a mature <laughs> member of the wind section now after 20 years. Uh, so I don't injure myself. 
Um, but I have to think a lot, you, you know, just about the kind of psychological playing out and really bringing 125% to what I'm doing. We're playing Porgy right now, for example, and I'd never played it before, so I can double saxophone. So I was learning the part for new. It's like all in B major. It's really hard. And then you really just have to wail. You know, I had to practice glisses and and just having fun. It's, it's a different um, mentality more than anything. And then when you go back to second, that's also a different mentality. You know, you're not the soloist anymore. You're not the creative driver of the musical ideas anymore. I've often found that I went back to second. Uh, sometimes it's, this is boring, you know, or sometimes I'm like, why, well, you know, I want to play first. And I, I generally, there's a transition period for each one of those, right? When you go to first, you're like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me. This is so embarrassing, right? And and then you go back to second, you're like, nobody's looking at me. This is so boring. And so you kind of have to adjust. And maybe about after a month, then, you know, I adjust back to second and there's less pressure. I don't have to warm up as much. I have time for other things in my life. You know, I, I really do enjoy um, teamwork. I love collaborating collaborating. And that's a big part of my leadership philosophy too. So I really feel that a lot on second, where you're just making the principle feel so comfortable, uh, just pitch articulation, you're just matching everything. There's sort of like um, ownership over making being meticulous about making everything so um, in sync as a section. You mentioned leadership and being part of a team. How did you find yourself in the position of leading the orchestra committee through these negotiations? I mean, that is a major pivot that most people would never want to accept. I mean, that's got to be literally one of the most thankless jobs in the world. Um, but also having to step up in, in the bright lights. I mean, for, for the listeners... I'm not sure that they realized how important that role was, how important those negotiations were for the musicians, for the entire orchestra, and, and for classical music. I mean, it, it was a seminal moment for orchestral playing, certainly. How did you get thrust into that? I, I think after the first 10 years in the orchestra, I became sort of known as... Um, somebody who had other skills, I guess. And I think what people don't realize is that the orchestra musicians are pretty much fundamentally charged with negotiating their own contracts. I never knew that in school, but of course I didn't go to a conservatory. But that's an ongoing conversation that I'm having in classrooms right now, is that most students don't understand that and are not prepared for it. And um, I thought, you know, I have some time. I'm, I, went, I was back on second, and um, I love the orchestra. I love it uh, as a community. It had been so good to me, and I kind of grew up there. You know, I started when I was 24, and I got onto the orchestra committee in 2011. I was elected maybe after the second or third time my name was nominated. 
And it, 2011 was a negotiation year. So generally what happens is anybody who's been in a negotiation just leaves the committee. So a lot, it's a good time to have new people come on. And I came on as a new person um, and really just wanted to learn. I didn't know anything about negotiations. I didn't know anything about bylaws, you know, how the orchestra committee uh, really uh, has a set of bylaws, which are the rules by which the organization of the orchestra really governs itself. So of course, I became completely fascinated with it because all of my political science background was just like, oh, God, this is like, yeah, this is I get it. Um, and I, I liked doing projects and working with management to, you know, one of the first things I think I did was get new music stands for the orchestra, you know, somehow advocating in that way. And everybody, of course, they were metal Wenger music stands. And of course, now I hate them so much because anytime a conductor asks us to write something down, everybody picks up their pencils and write something down and throws the pencil down on the stand and it makes this big horrible clanking noise and I'm like why didn't I get the plastic stands you know <laughs> it's so, so annoying <laughs> but anyway I mean so I I sort of was doing stuff you know I was dedicated and what what we find in most orchestras is people don't want to do that work it's a lot of time and people have families and they have other stuff they want to do of course, you're not getting paid for any of that time. It's really just community service and uh, what we call what I would call civic impact in in your in your uh, orchestra. So um, I was not chair; I was vice chair. But the chair who was the chair leading into 2014, which was uh, a negotiation year, he ended up getting a job somewhere else, and he left. <laughs> he 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 uh, stepped down in February of 2014, literally two weeks before we were set to sit down at the table. You know, nobody else on the committee wanted to do it, and they were like, "Jess, it's you. You know, you can do this." Um, they wanted me to do it. They put their support behind me. There were, in particular, there were two um, gentlemen who had been both chairs of former negotiating committees that didn't want to do the work and they also felt it was important for somebody new to do it and they were extremely supportive of me throughout that negotiation and that is I think also something that is not known is that the, that history of negotiations is super important uh, what's happened before what we fought for in the past kind of not just wage increases, but work rules and why those work rules are really important, why they're there to protect people from injury, for example. Conditions, schedules, the, the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. And, and that in particular was important when we, in 2018, negotiated Sundays. We, we negotiated a lot of work rules so that people would not feel overwhelmed by that additional day. So if they wanted to be with their families, they could. But we also negotiated it so that if you do a lot of Sundays as a young person, you would get paid overtime for doing more than a certain amount of them. Because some people wanted to do Sundays, actually. And Broadway does Sundays. So there's a lot of musicians who are, who are, are happy to work on a Sunday because they'd rather have a Monday free. So we tried to do it for both people. And understanding those work roles was, was really important in, in, in understanding how that would affect people in general in the orchestra. So yeah, I got to, you know, it's an elected position. The orchestra has to elect the chair. 
and uh, I was elected and uh, I remember I was on vacation <laughs> when that happened and I got back and the first thing I did was uh, Wozzeck. I was playing in the stage band in the tavern scene. So I was dressed as a gypsy and Peter Gelb came up on stage and, you know, like came to shake my hand and say, I don't, I don't know if it's congratulations or condolences, but, you know, welcome to the chairmanship. So. So for those listening, what is different between the orchestra committee and the actual Met Orchestra Musicians nonprofit organization? Because they're, they're two separate functions, are they not? They're two separate entities. Right. How did the Met Orchestra Musicians nonprofit organization come to be? So the Met Orchestra Musicians nonprofit was founded by me and a few of my colleagues. Uh, and it is in, uh, at least in the United States, what's considered a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And which basically means that we can accept donations. And for the person who gave the donation, it's a tax deductible donation. So they can write it off on their own personal taxes. And we did that uh, for a number of reasons. And it's a separate entity from the committee, mostly because we really, at the time, that was when people were starting to talk about community engagement. And New York obviously has so many neighborhoods that are underserved and have their music classes cut and so many um, music education just um, initiatives are are no longer offered to those students. So we really wanted to create a vehicle through which we could connect ourselves with those communities. And the Met Opera really has its hands full doing it at the opera level. And we wanted to engage in a much different way. And so that's when we started Met Orchestra Musicians Instagram and Twitter. I, I started the Twitter account, you know, and it's like we wanted to have our own voice. We wanted to be a voice within the house under the umbrella of the Met Opera, um, but really give people a, an inside peek, you know, like pull back the curtain a little bit and get to know us and create stories about us. And of course, this wasn't necessarily all um, all about civic impact. There was some self-serving goals in there, part of which was at the time in 2014, uh, Peter Gelb and, and the Met Opera board were, were um, threatening to lock us out. And that kind of work stoppage is incredibly difficult and you need your community. And we also knew that we needed to have our community and have our backs. We also talked to politicians. We met with Bill de Blasio. We met with all of our you know, city council people and made a lot of political connections as well um, as committee members. So uh, the committee really basically serves to negotiate on behalf of the orchestra. So a collective bargaining agreement basically is one agreement that is for everyone. So I know a lot of people think, oh, they get into an orchestra and they negotiate their own contract. Not really. You might negotiate your own small overscale if you're a principal and you think you have leverage and you're coming from another orchestra or something like that. But you're basically handed our collectively bargained contract. And then you might get like a principal, you know, salary cushion on top of that. But those those are individually done. We don't do those. So we we negotiate the, the body of the agreements um, with management 
And that's that's sort of the difference. The the, the orchestra um, had a lot of interest in doing community engagement things. And so that's why we created this sort of kind of 501c3 nonprofit Met Orchestra Musicians. And it it's really grown into a huge life of its own. It has over, you know, 17,000 followers and on Facebook and Instagram. And part of that is because we just told stories about who we were and what's unique about opera and opera musicians and exactly what you're asking me. Uh, what are the differences between the pit and the orchestra? And people really wanted to hear those stories. That was really quite successful. And of course, you know, the Met Opera sanctions that. They're okay with us having that operation, but the 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 committee is just basically there to govern the orchestra from day to day and then negotiate on its behalf. What was it like living those negotiations live in the public eye? I know for the uh, for the committee for the entire orchestra, you were publicizing a lot of things that were going on. You were um, preparing white papers and um, making a lot of posts and being interviewed in the news. And I think that, that that's something that a lot of orchestras um, were missing. And, and certainly the, the Met paved the way for that. But what was it like making that proactive decision to get out, brand yourselves, to, to take ownership and accountability for your own future? We are very lucky in that we're in New York City. So our union, Local 802, uh, at the time, the president was Tino Gagliardi, and they were incredibly uh, supportive, both with throwing money <laughs> into our um, organizing, but also the fact that uh, they provided a lot of training for us as well. So... We were not the ones who decided to go public at that time. Uh, generally, every negotiation before 2014 was pretty much behind the scenes. It may not necessarily have been peaceful, but they were tough. They were tough and respectful. Uh, 2014 signaled a new era. This was the era of Peter Gelb, and he went public and said the Met was going to go bankrupt. And we sort of... I think we're so shocked by that, uh, but it really also served to bring the orchestra together and um, help to rally everybody to the cause of being prepared for these negotiations, which is extremely helpful in some way. You know, the best thing that an acrimonious negotiation could do is put everybody on the same page. You know, you have one common enemy instead of everybody having, you know, 18 different opinions, which is also true with 100 people in the orchestra. So in some ways, that's that's good. You're 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 on the same page, but you're also kind of fighting for your life. We had a lot of uh, training with uh talking with reporters. We hired a political relations person, Randy Watley, who was phenomenal. We're still friends to this day, but he would make us practice interviewing with, with newspaper people. Like I didn't know what on the record was off the record. You know, I didn't know how to write a quote, any of that. And he, he really put us through training for that. And every interview that I went through, he made me talk first, which was like, if we think about it as musicians, we're used to having mock auditions, but he made me do mock interviews 
which was hard. All of a sudden, I'm like talking with my voice, not my clarinet. So it was really, really important to go through the motions of saying our message out loud. Um, I went on New York One. You know, he he was like, wear lip gloss and put your glasses on. You'll be great. You know, and like he would tell me what to do and what to wear, wear, you know, wear black, wear blue. Uh, so he was just incredible in that in that area. And I think that's sort of what um, got me interested in that kind of work that sort of feeds into KMP consulting in, in that way. Uh, but the union is in New York a very strong union, right? We have Broadway here, so they have resources, and and not every orchestra in a smaller city has the same union that's as strong. So we we were really lucky, um, you know. Being in the press, uh, you know, I think it's just. You, you almost don't even realize it. And now when I go back and read something or or I read the, the the famous Jim Stewart article in The New Yorker, I'm going, oh, my God, you know, how did I live through that? Uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it was all it's all consuming. It's just it 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 was my entire life at the time. And it uh, in the end, I think it was an incredible experience, but it was really hard during that time for sure. Aside from the professional aspect of having to go through those negotiations while keeping up your skills and your abilities as a clarinetist, what was it like personally going through that emotionally? Yeah, I mean, everything is, you're the tip of the spear, you know? Um, you have a committee of nine people, and I, the, 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 the colleagues that I had on my committee, I should say that, the, the committee at the time was uh, an incredible group of people. We're all like still besties to this day. You know, when you've been in the trenches with somebody, your relationship is just, uh, it's something different. So I, I was very lucky in that I was surrounded by brilliant people, people who are experienced, people who challenge the status quo. I, in particular, consider myself a collaborative leader where I want to hear everybody. I want to hear from everybody, even if you don't agree with me or that person or whatever, because generally speaking, the dissenting voice speaks for somebody in the orchestra. Right. If there's nine people on the committee and 100 people in the orchestra, you talk to 10 people, you're representing those people. So I want to know what you think. And I think that everybody in the committee should know what you think. And generally, we would operate on what we call the thumb system. So the thumbs up was like, yeah, I, I agree with this. Sideways thumb was, I don't love this, but I'll go along with it and I'll support it publicly to my colleagues who hate it. I will tell them you know, why we had to do this and why it's the best of worst options. And thumbs down is I will not support this. I will not support it with my colleagues. I cannot, you know, in good conscience, good conscience support this in any way, shape or form. And for me, it was um, not like a vote up or down. It was thumbs. And if somebody had a thumbs down, I want to hear from you. Why? How can we get you from thumbs down to sideways thumbs? And generally, that person had a really good reason for why they were thumbs down. And incorporating their concern into the overall, whatever it was, issue, contract language, you know, any anything really, what, 
whatever we were working on was made better by hearing that dissenting voice and incorporating their concerns. And that was how we were able to, you know, move forward as a group. I think consensus is sort of a tricky, a tricky word, but it was really collaborative consensus. And that way, anybody who was not happy, we would say, well, this is how the committee decided to go. You know, we were all in agreement. It wasn't, I didn't vote for that. And I think that's super important to understand because there is always going to be people who don't agree with what you do. And I generally say to them, well, you can run for the committee next time, <laughs> you know, because this is how we decided to do it. Yeah, and Walk a mile in my shoes. Exactly. What would you say to an orchestra facing negotiations or financial peril? That is really, I think, the, the issue, right? I mean, there are so many orchestras that are facing financial peril. Um, a lot of orchestras in the United States got lucky with government loans and um, some, some government bailout. The Met did not, unfortunately, it was too big. Uh, which was really hard, really hard for us. I I personally think there are a couple of things that have to happen. Number one, relationships are everything. So relationships with your management, relationships with other people in the management, um, the 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 PR people, the digital marketing, all of those uh, community impact people, the education people, all of those people are super important because they want content from us. There's only so much content and storytelling that they can do on their own, but we're the only ones who can really uniquely tell those stories and provide that content for them. So knowing that, and I think especially, you know, in the future, um, that's going to be key. But those relationships are really important because at the table, then you can create value and, and you can make the pie bigger. So for example, in 2018, we really knew that the Met was hearing from a lot of their longtime patrons and early new patrons that they wanted more intimate experiences behind the scenes. And obviously we're a part of that. Um, we're not the only thing, but there were there were many um, many research surveys and marketing surveys that said I want a unique experience, and we can provide that. So we offered volunteer hours, and people could decide to do it or not. Right? You could be asked to do a young associates, which is our young kind of uh, under forty board members. They have meet and greets five times a year, and so we started sending two people from the orchestra and two people from the chorus to go and just meet and talk with them. And so you could volunteer to do that, and we solidified that in the contract as just volunteer hours. And in exchange for that, the Met took a wage cut off the table, um, a portion of a wage cut. So that's what I mean by creating value. So you can create value that is really no skin off our back, right? It's volunteer hours. Nobody had to do it. Nobody's compelled to do it. And the Met needs it. And so by knowing that having relationships with those individual departments was like, you're going to need this, you know, so we could create that value. 
And I think that's that's what people don't understand is that they think negotiations are this like acrimonious, you know, bang your fist on the table, I need more money. And it, and it isn't. At the end of the day, your organization has to survive. You all have to go back to work in that organization. So you need to find ways to honor your people, right? And that's part of the puzzle too. You need to know your people. You need to know what they want and what they value and what their priorities are. So in each different negotiation that I did, those values and those priorities changed. You know, the second one was really about the pension for us. And so we we created a deal around pension and what the management wanted was Sundays. And so those were the two big issues, but there were so many other smaller issues. So we, we dealt with all the smaller issues first and then left the big economic issues last. And, you know, it's stressful to do it that way, but we did a lot of change in a really short amount of time. But knowing, knowing your people and uh, I think that's the most important thing, but also how they like to be communicated with. A lot of people say, be transparent. And that's, that's a really elusive thing. So I think it's all about communication, how frequently you're communicating, how you're providing answers, how you're answering questions, um, how frequently you hold meetings, things like that. That's all sort of the kind of behavioral psychology of the orchestra as its own, you know, hive mind organism. You kind of really have to know your group and, and what their history is in that way. That's, that's crucial. Going on the topic of relationships, did KNP come out of the Met Orchestra musicians? Is that where you found that base, that need, that niche? And how did that develop? Was it a COVID project or was it something that was in play before COVID? KNP is a, a partnership. Uh, we're an LLC, but it's a partnership with uh, my colleague Miron Kim. So she's the K to my P. Um, and people had asked us to do certain things like, you know, can you help me do, do this or design this, you know, or how should I deal with PR on this issue? How do I talk to a reporter? I want to start a business. What should I do? Can you build me a website? Can you design a graphic? Miran is a violinist, um, incredible violinist. And she's also an amazing artist. Her mother was an artist, so she just has a lot of history in graphic design and art. She's a makeup artist. So she's an incredible entrepreneur herself and has worked on Fashion Week in New York and and all kinds of things. So she's visually so talented and can do all of uh, all of the graphic design on computer as well. So our our partnership kind of just grew out of Met Orchestra Musicians and building the social media for for Met Orchestra Musicians. Um, we were kind of the ones behind the at-home gala, the that first at-home gala of COVID, like all, you know, before everybody was all, all doing a bunch of boxes, but we kind of got our orchestra to, to do that. And that was like, you know, over like 50,000 views on YouTube or something. So we were really... Uh, working and implementing a lot of projects. And then COVID hit, we were furloughed and so many of our friends were like, I don't even, I don't know what to do. And our, our partnership is really 
quite organic because I'm sort of the business brain, the strategic brain, the innovation brain. Murana's innovation totally. She has her she has her thumb on the pulse of everything cool that's happening. But she's like the artistic brain and um, how can we do something different? And if you're saying something what's unique about what you're saying in a very crowded marketplace. You know, how can you set yourself apart? We got asked to do a a kind of strategic rebrand of Montclair Orchestra and kind of just were like, I guess we're doing it, you know, (laughs) and, and filed for an LLC. And, you know, we made it, we made a good amount of money actually during COVID through that partnership, which was extremely helpful because, you know, the Met was furloughed. So I never really got that three week binge Netflix, everything that you've always wanted to watch. You know, I just like started working. (laughs) It was kind of crazy in that way. We had so many clients and, and, you know, we wanted to build our own social media and do all of these things. And literally every single client we got was word of mouth through a colleague and uh, we're still finishing up um, a, a project with uh, a nonprofit organization called Project 440 in Philadelphia uh, that we're doing while we're still working. So it's it's been fun. We don't want to leave it now that we're back because it has been a really interesting way to talk to people all over the country and hear what musicians issues are and how they're dealing with it and what's changing for people, particularly in the freelance communities. Um, but it's also hard to kind of be back at work and teaching and, you know, doing all of these things. So who knows, who knows where it'll go. I find there's a real need for artists, especially orchestral artists to stand on their own. Um, and I think that that has changed a lot. COVID for sure has brought that out, but it was simmering before COVID where, you know, let's call it decades ago. You were an orchestral musician. That was your role. That was everything that people knew you by. And times are changing. Artists are establishing themselves outside of their organizations. And you know, I look at David Schifrin as uh, somebody who paved the way for that when he was playing in the orchestra, uh, several different orchestras. Uh, and then he left Cleveland and, and he paved his own way and, and made a name for himself. And there are a lot of orchestral musicians, especially during COVID, who have done that. And they're no longer just the XYZ position or chair of, of X orchestra. They are their own artist. What would you say to somebody who's, who's looking at that, who's contemplating that leap to the next level, who, who wants to make a, either a different future or provide more security for themselves and their their future. Yeah. I, I mean, when Miran and I started um, our social media channels for Met Orchestra Musicians, people didn't know what to even say. You know, we would say, can you do something about your, you know, your whatever, your life in this way or how you get ready with your two kids and your husband also plays in the orchestra. How, how does that affect your life? You know, tell that story. And they were so shy. They were like, who wants to hear about that? You know? And then we would do it and it would, it would do really well. You know, our, what our audience was telling us was people want to hear those stories and they have to be authentic. Right. And even further to that, right. In the, in the, in the wake of, at least in this country, 
of George Floyd's murder is that representation matters too. And that classical music has just not done enough in that area. We just are not challenging ourselves to even consider it. And um, that's something that sh that Miran and I, she's, she's um, Korean American and her parents uh, were born in Korea. She was born here. And so that's something also that is really important to her and it's important to me. And so, you know, there are so many ways that we need to change, but it's also like curiosity isn't there something else we can do, you know, like, isn't there some different way we can tell this story? Isn't there something, you know, and, and you see it starting to come up now. You have Louise Franck symphony, you have Lara Downs doing the Florence Price uh, piano um, sonatas that are just so gorgeous, you know, and it's like, hello, each one of the musicians that we've talked to have those projects, have those stories, have those experiences, but just were kind of like afraid to tell them because they weren't mainstream. And if anything, what I would say is tell those unique stories. They have to be authentic to ring true in the social media sphere and don't expect overnight success. Social media is all about algorithms and, and reels on Instagram are Instagram uh, prioritizes them to compete with TikTok, right? That has nothing to do with how good your content is, right? So it's basically about having quality content and quality interaction with your people, right? Your followers, your community and creating those connections. That's what we have found to be the most positive thing for you and your community, right? So it's, it's, it's not necessarily, oh, this person has 3 million followers. It's, well, how many do they actually interact with? How many people actually look at their content? How many people actually take away something from their content? So if you have something to say, say something. Earlier this year, you were invited to be one of 13 industry leaders, young leaders, I would, I would say, um, who were invited to Opera America's Leadership Intensive Program. From everything that I've read about it, it represents the future of opera, um, the next generation, the planning, the strategy that goes into it. I believe you were the only orchestral musician among the group, were you not? Yes. So how, how did this come to be? Did you apply? Were you uh, recommended? I was looking for stuff to do to get more experience. Um, I was contacted by several organizations, big organizations, uh, to interview for like head honchos, artistic director and uh, president and dean and director. And in all of those situations, I felt that my administrative knowledge was not uh, experienced enough. So I was really looking for ways to develop those pieces of kind of my repertoire, if you will, and and diversify. So I I did go back to school and and got my you know certificate in nonprofits arts management from NYU and uh, subsequently did a, a labor relations 
course online at Cornell. And um, all that stuff was really great. But the um, Opera America, I, I was I was kind of reached out to, I know, um, a couple of people there and they're like, you should apply. So it was an application process and you go through three rounds of interviews and, um, you know, that's, that's how you get in. And it was an incredible experience. First of all, the 13 of us had this incredible group chat <laughs> now, you know, like that group, that cohort becomes so close and you just go through this really intense, you know, period. I guess the only thing that I could that I could liken it to is sort of like outward bound, you know, you really have each other's back and there's a lot of uh, growth um, that happens in the room. And, you know, if you weren't there, you, you can't really um, understand it. So that group really sticks together. And that's part of the point is that then those people are questioning themselves, their organizations, and they're supporting each other. So, there was a lot about the future of opera. Um, in my particular kind of part of it, it was, there's just not a lot of communication between musicians and management. Amen. You know? Not enough, for sure. <laughs> not enough. There isn't enough education in the education system for musicians. There isn't enough education for administrators. And I think that it's sort of like slowly developing into the thing that I think I'm doing right now, which is a lot of negotiation education. Um, I've done a couple of, you know, like modules for for organizations. And of course, I'm teaching at Manhattan School and um, at the Juilliard School. And there's just right now, I think there's just a lot of conversations about musicians need these skills. They don't necessarily have them and and they need to have them and they can translate to every single part of their life so it's not a waste it's not just about can you negotiate with management but negotiation of course happens every day all day long i mean i just negotiated with sirius radio this morning to lower my monthly payment you know like because i felt like i could do you want to give us some tips <laughs> yeah right leverage it's all about leverage so that was the biggest takeaway for me um, was there is a serious disconnect there. And I feel kind of I went in going, I'm I'm sort of in no man's land. I'm stuck between both groups, but also that's that's a that's the place I'm in. So how can I bring people together and actually create conversations and education and learning that will better the industry? Because the reality is it is tough. It is going to be tough and we have to work together. There are things that management needs from us and that we need from management. So how can we create value and actually really pivot together? And the organizations that did that did well in COVID, for sure. I have a question for you. Um, do you have any questions for me before I close the podcast and go into the lightning round? Well, actually I do, you know. I mean, I've known you for how long now? Uh, almost 20 years. I want to say 18, 19 years. We met, I believe yeah. it was in 2002 or 2003, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I mean, you. speaking of entrepreneurial, I mean, you guys grew Bakun Musical. I mean, so I don't know that people know the story, but I'm going to tell them anyway, that Joel and I, by hand, designed the first E-flat 
barrel and Joel had to like use a lathe to, <laughs> to like sand down the, totally. the reed cut out on the back. I mean, that's what we were doing. And um, it was a, you guys have just grown, I don't know if, exp- I won't say exponentially because that's really a mathematical word, but I mean, you've grown by leaps and bounds over time. What do you, what do you kind of attribute your growth success to? Um, that's a great question. I would say grind. You know, if there's one thing that I have learned from Maury, who happens to be my uncle for the listeners, um, many people know that, but some people don't. It's grind. It's just this sheer determination to not give up. I remember our very first clarinet fest, the summer of 2003, where we showed up with these handmade barrels and people were like, oh, you guys are fed. You're not going to be here any longer. I give you five years max. And I still see those same people at Clarinet Fest and they still walk by our booth and they're like, damn. And it's, it's been a lot. It's been, you know, there's been a lot of, um, of ups. There's been a lot of downs and been a lot of learning. I would just say more than anything, it's the grind. It's the perseverance. Uh, and it's, it's necessary for musicians too, uh, to just not give up be in that practice room and, and have your eyes on the prize, whatever that audition is or that center stage moment. And for us, um, it's, it's been that, you know, it's, it's been a lot, but I'm very grateful, you know, this provides for my family, um, it provides for our staff's family, and, and it also it provides a, a product in the market that I think is welcomed. And when you see the growth that we've had as a business, I think that that's value in the market. So, yeah, great question. Thank you for that. Normally, if you were listening to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other free platform, the episode would end here, and there'd be an exclusive extended version available to those who support the program at clarinet.com join or on Patreon. However, Baku Musical Services has generously offered to sponsor the extended version of the show for all of Joel's guest hosted episodes. So thank you so much to Bakun for doing that. And I do hope that you enjoy the extended content here today. Don't forget that at the end of the program, I do like to include a little bit of listener feedback. However, this week, not so much came in. There was a couple comments. People really did enjoy the last episode with Diane Barger. And I have to agree, that was a fantastic conversation and a real sort of uh, really personal perspective on something, which I'm really glad that was shared here on the show. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, do head back to episode 164 from last week. Um, Also, some upcoming uh, guests on the program, we have actually Denise Ganey coming up in the in a, I think it'll be next week actually I'll air that one and uh, also Joel interviewed me which hasn't happened in a few years nobody's interviewed me uh, on the program here in quite some time so a little bit of an update into my life a lot has changed I've had uh, you know two kids since I think I first had an interview like that here on the program so it was really great to sort of catch up and discuss some of what's been going on in my life and my interests and, and things you might not generally hear about here on the program so uh, if you do have some comments or questions or something you'd like to hear me talk about at the end of the show here, do feel free to send me a message at hello at clarinet.com. I do take the time to reply to every single message that does come in, and I love to hear from listeners all over the world. Don't go anywhere because the lightning round portion of this episode is coming up right after these messages from our sponsors. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. 
Use code Clarinet at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code Clarinet at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Now, I'm going to invite Jessica Phillips to join me for the lightning round. Ten questions I ask, you answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question number one. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or deceased, who would it be? Maybe Barack Obama? I think Barack Obama. Fabulous. I assume you've read all of his books. <laughs> of course. Yes. Number two, favorite opera to perform. This could be in the pit or on the stage. I mean, if you, if you wanted to sing, what would be your favorite? I'm going to go. It, it changes, but I'm going to go with Marriage of Figaro right now because um, when I'm not playing in the pit, I am generally singing or mouthing along because I know all the words. And it just never never gets old. It's so... Uh, cleansing to the spirit and the soul. So that's my answer today anyway. All right. What's your non-classical desert island recording? I mean, it just, oh, geez, that's really hard. Um, I'm going to go with Fleetwood Mac rumors. That's a great one. Wow. Everyone has a guilty pleasure. What's yours? Facials. All right. Mine's pedicures, but... Nobody's asking me. <laughs> that too. <laughs> What's one thing you've taken for granted? My body. The health of my body, for sure. I have to do acupuncture now. And uh, it's just injuries are the worst. Being in pain is the absolute worst. Don't take your body for granted. That's amazing. My doctor recommended acupuncture, and I was like, that's ridiculous. It's not going to help. And he's like, Joel, just go. And I did, and it was like... Good Lord. It's life-changing. It is insane. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm a true believer. I, it, I mean, luckily, ours is covered by insurance. I think every musician, because we just have get these little micro, you know, knots, and acupuncture is the only thing that can get that. So I swear by it. Next question. The best advice you've never been given? If you have a life purpose then nothing else really matters. You don't have to compare yourself to anybody else. You don't have to strive to be the best. You can just simply be you and everything sort of falls into place. Confidence, satisfaction. And we know this from science too, you know, you, the money does not give you satisfaction, right? Your life needs to have purpose and meaning and that's what does it, so... I don't think anybody ever told me that, but it's, I'm telling you all now. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really hard lesson to learn too, for sure. It's hard. Yeah. It's so hard. All right. What's your go-to scale or study? I have a, I, I give it to all my students too. I have sort of compiled four different like 
volumes of of scale exercises, but basically it's Weber long tones. It's B major from you know height Behrman, and then it's some Opperman stuff, left hand, right hand register key. And then it's um, with, you know, without the register key, you play it without the register key. And then like some old Lanchinus articula- articulation exercises. And uh, Ricardo's a big fan of uh, violin, like little noodles, the Shradiak violin. So uh, I have those in like A major, B major. If I have to kick my ass, that's it. I will do a shameless plug for your Bakun YouTube videos where you do a video on um, with without the register key. Um, and it is awesome. And it is, it kicks everybody's butt. I've heard from numerous, numerous people after that. It's just, it's hard. It's the thing. It really does. It's, it's, if you have to like get in shape right away, that's, that's it. If the pandemic taught you anything, what is it? Curiosity is everything. You know, we hold, people like Steve Jobs and people who are innovators on a pedestal, but we didn't at the time. So innovation and curiosity and being willing to, um, it's not just question the status quo, but to have curiosity, a curiosity about why we do certain things and be willing to be yourself. Favorite restaurant in New York City? Just one. So hard. Um, I'm going to go with kind of an old stuffy standard after I just talked about innovation. Um, but Jean-Georges. <laughs> For like, you know, the ultimate meal experience. All right. One of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it can't always be Katz's, right? I mean, or. Right. <laughs> insert other restaurant here. I mean, there's so many good restaurants. Amazing. I know. Last question. What would you say to someone who is rethinking a career in classical music for whatever reason? I think number one, it's like there has to be a reality check. What is it that you want to do? There are only so many orchestra positions. Um, How prepared are you to have a side hustle or freelance or if, if, like, is this the only thing you can do? And, and generally when it's like, yes, this is the only thing I can do, then it's like, okay, then how are you going to make it happen? Right. You need a plan. And sometimes in that conversation with people, they talk themselves in or out. And I've seen it go both ways, right? One of my best friends went to law school, left Juilliard, and then 10 years later, couldn't stand it and came back. And she's playing bassoon in Mexico now. And I've also seen it the other way. Somebody who played an instrument and then was like, no, I, I can't do this anymore. So personally, I just think it's like, what is the thing that gives you purpose, you know, for your life? And follow that. There is no right or wrong. Jessica, thank you for taking the time to join me today, for sharing your knowledge and experience with our listeners. Finally, thanks to you, our valued listeners, for subscribing to the Clarinate Podcast and supporting Sean's work. It's truly a labor of love. Signing off from Vancouver, Canada, I am Joel Jaffe, guest host of the Clarinate Podcast.